Join us for Courageous Conversations on August 1st and 2nd. Why? Because we want to demonstrate how to have these conversations on very difficult topics. Many things that we learn are caught, not taught. What better way to catch them than watching 28 scholars and pastors from all across the country doing it? Because I believe that believers should be on the forefront of this. In a divided world, the church should lead on how to have courageous conversations. The goals of Courageous Conversations are simple. We want to get beyond the caricatures that divide us. We want to sharpen one another. We want to build genuine relationships with those who think differently. We want to provide a safe space for dialogue and demonstrate how to effectively discuss controversial issues with people who think differently and to show the world the diversity of thought within black churches. That's why we're going to talk about those topics relevant for the church and the culture like hell, Paul sexual ethics, how to interpret the Old Testament, things we know that they disagree on, but to have a respectful conversation to demonstrate something that I think that the church should be leading on, how to have courageous conversations. So join us on August 1st and 2nd in Atlanta, Georgia for the second annual Courageous Conversations. Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today, I'm so excited to have uh, Daryl Ford with us. And before we introduce him on today, I just want to remind you to register for Courageous Conversations August 1st and 2nd. It's going to be in Atlanta, Georgia, and it's going to be a phenomenal time. 28 scholars, pastors, and thought leaders talking about a wide range of topics like hell, interpreting the Old Testament and either the new, preaching the Black millennials, uh, what is sin. It's going to be a phenomenal time. So make sure you register at CourageousCombos.org or you could go to G3Project.com. There's a link there. Um, and we're continuing um, our conversation that we had on last week. We had one on Megan Good and Church Hurt. It wasn't last week, but the week before last. Um, and today uh, we're talking uh, with Pastor Daryl Ford about um, some of his experiences with Church Hurt. Um, and before we get into that, can you uh, just tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, my name is Daryl Ford. I'm a pastor and church planter of Icon Community Church. We are in Atlanta, kind of East Atlanta, Decatur area. Uh, we've been going for almost five years. Uh, I am originally from Detroit, Michigan. Uh, I am a military veteran. I was in the Air Force for several years, uh, lived all over the country, uh, spent a lot of time uh, in a lot of different ministries, but I grew up in uh, more of the Pentecostal denominations, both the PAW and the Church of God in Christ. Uh, and so I feel like I've been a little bit of a, a theological mutt <laughs> as I've kind of grown up in, in ministry. Uh, but but and so now, uh, yeah, I've been pastoring for the last five years and, and God has been faithful. Awesome. Well, uh, we first talked about this in Chicago on last year. Uh, when we met and some kind of way we got into this subject <laughs> and I share a little bit of my um, interesting encounter or experience uh, with Church Hurt that I shared a little bit about mm -hmm. on um, the episode with uh, Dr. Monique Gatson. 
um, on our last episode. And then we started talking about that. Then you started sharing your story. And I was really blown away <laughs> by how you were still even going to church or pastoring <laughs> um, with all of that going on. So yeah. um, <laughs> um, if you were to kind of start and, and share your story, yeah. um, where would you begin? I, I would I would begin. Uh, you know, I, I, I would begin really at, at the beginning of, of life for me. I think that as a, as a kid, I was like a lot of, a lot of, uh, kids, a lot of, uh, a lot of black kids in Detroit grow up in church. I grew up in church. Uh, my, my parents, my grandparents had always been in church. Um, and so, uh, I, I was, I was born. My dad, uh, was uh, a big, uh, gospel music artist, song, singer, songwriter, uh, in broadcasting. And so I was heavily involved in church from, from the, from the beginning. And then I began, you know, I started singing and playing in church and that was just a part of our life. It's that constant joke that people bring up of like, Hey, we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday. Uh, if you go to church on Sunday, pack a lunch and a sleeping bag. Cause that's just how life was for us. Um, but I, I grew up going to uh, a church. The first church that I was in uh, was in the PAW, Pentecostal Assemblies of the World. Uh, I went to the largest church in Detroit at the time, and uh, that's where my mom and dad met, got married. Uh, and so and so I had uh, grown up in that for you know, a good part of my early years. And then, um, and then uh, ended up going eventually to Kojic Church where my dad was raised. And so had been there. And, and so I, I grew up seeing, I tell everybody, I grew up um, when Detroit was the gospel music capital of the world. And so I grew up loving gospel music. I grew up very close to several gospel artists through my dad and dad had mentored many of them um, and some of them live in Atlanta now. Uh, and he had uh, done a ton with a lot of folks. And so I, I grew up loving it, connected to it. But I also grew up seeing the underbelly of a lot of that. And so there was through a lot of the things that I experienced and saw, there were a lot of things that made me almost never want to be a part of church again and, and even want to run away from music and all of that because of things that I had seen or experienced. Yeah. And uh, we're going to get more into that. But before we even go into that, I, there's a clip I posted earlier um, a couple of days ago of Jay-Z mm. and he was on Rap Radar podcast. Um and he was talking about why he left or kind of shunned the idea of Christianity. And it all had to do with his grandfather. He talks about it in some legacy, molesting his aunt, which is his grandfather's daughter. Mm. And he was a pastor mm. and it kind of was swept under the rug. And for him, it's like he equated re- Christianity with his grandfather and his grandfather was a poor example of that. Mm-hmm. And so Christianity became something he he shunned. And mm-hmm. so one of the reasons I posted that is because oftentimes when we think about apologetics, we just think about intellectual engagement, mm-hmm. about why people don't um, want anything to do with Christianity. Yeah. But if we don't listen to their stories and their trauma, we won't really be, be able to give them a holistic answer that touches the head and the heart. Mm-hmm. Um, because so many of people's rejection of Christianity has little to do with intellectual arguments and a lot to do with trauma. That's right. And so that's why we're having this conversation mm. about church hurt and we're walking through it with several different people. Um, and I may share more of my story at the end of it, mm. um, but we're, we're having um, another pastor coming on next week 
and then um, some other people. So I really just want to give a comprehensive view from different perspectives. And what I love about how we're shaping this series is, is people that still are in the church and had to navigate mm-hmm. their way through um, trying to process trauma yeah. um, and, and <laughs> still <laughs> reconcile that with a God that is not like some of the people that claim to mm. to um, be representing him. So, That's right. so as we think, I just want to set that up because some people are listening like, what does this have to do with apologetics? And it really <laughs> has everything to do with it. If you're going to be, um, the Bible says, he that wins souls is wise. Amen. And that wisdom comes from knowing that they're in within that wisdom, you realize that, hey, there's more to this and more to people's objections than just their intellectual mm. questions. That's good. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that we talked about is what was, when when we think about church hurt for you, what was that initial trauma? What was the first experience you think that was like, oh man, this is going to, that you saw or felt that kind of changed the trajectory of how you thought about church? Yeah, I I think... um... That's, that's a that's such a big question because there's so many. I mean, I think of so many, and I'm trying to drill down. I think I think that one of the one of the first things that I can recall is the 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 ways in which the churches that I had been raised in would o- overlook the the suffering that had been caused by the church. So they would overlook the suffering of people. In the church, so I think about very directly my my my, my siblings and I, my brothers and I. Uh, there's four of us. So my my sister's the youngest, but my brothers dealt with a good deal of of things at home and abuse from from my dad, and I watched my mother deal with a lot of physical abuse, and I looked at how the church would handle that, and it made so so my mom would deal with um, physical abuse. And, and have uh, different wounds and damages to her body and obviously to her soul and to her mind. And um, the way that the church would respond would be um, kind of rooted in kind of clergy protectionism, <laughs> you know, with, 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 with my dad being, you know, in music and, and all of that and, and, and having a, a prominent role in some ways, the, the church would kind of over overlook it, or I, my mom uh, would tell me that when uh, when she would bring things to the forefront for people at church, and that took a lot for her to even do that. But when she would do it, people would say, "Well, you know, he's got the Holy Ghost, he spoke in tongues, so he's got the Holy Spirit. So just let the Holy Spirit deal with him." There was no real sense of accountability. There was no real sense of calling out what is actually wrong. There was no form of form of calling to repentance. There was no plan for any form of ecclesiastical separation if said repentance did not culminate. Uh, there was none of that. And so basically it was her job to be able to to shut up in color, as we would say in the military. And 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 so she she I watched that and I saw like, man, if 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 mom has no recourse from for within the church and the spiritual authorities that are there. Uh, and we have no recourse for the things we're experiencing and dealing with in terms of abuse and other things. And then I'm watching other people go through horrendous things as well. And there's no real recourse. But I'm also seeing 
the same people constantly be praised for things that have nothing to do with character, but they may have something to do with competency. Uh, and so competency gets praised so much more than character. And all of us are the same. We all feed that for which we're praised the most. And so if you're praised for competency, you'll just keep building up competency and your character just suffers. And I think uh, that just was a big turnoff for me. So over time, I think I was internalizing that. Even as a little kid, I was internalizing that going, man, I mean, you can you can even hide deficient character be, uh, behind impressive competency. And, and so whether it's the way you preach, the way you play, the way you sing, whatever, or even your natural charisma, people are more willing to endure some of those bad things when you're rendering a service that people like and love. Mm-hmm. How did that affect you going into your teenage years? <clears throat> and I think, um, I mean, I, in my teenage years, I was, I was scrambling to try to make sense of a lot of things. I was trying to figure out what I believe theologically. So I was going through that. Uh, so there was the intellectual piece, but then I was trying to, I was actually trying and struggling and still do to be able to trust that, to be able to trust that there is indeed a loving God and a loving father. I think that, you know, it's said often, and I think it's true that the first idea, the first semblance of who God is for us is often from our parents. And, and so it was very difficult for me to even believe that there was like a loving God. I, I, I believe that there was a, a, a God that would judge right and wrong and that would um, uh, bring swift uh, uh, j- judgment for wrongdoers and those kinds of things. But I did not, I struggled with believing that. And so I, I struggled in my faith. I, I began to read and study a lot of different faiths to try to figure out, man, if, if what I've grown up seeing in Christianity, if that's what it is, then sign me up for something else. Because I'm not seeing this this idea of a God that's near to the brokenhearted. The God that I'm seeing is one that just keeps breaking hearts. I'm not. Yeah. That's that's what I saw, and so I I just had a hard time trusting that. And so I went through this thing through high school. I went through so many things of figuring out what I believed about Christianity, and then I started studying several other faiths and religions throughout. I mean, religions that are minuscule to religions that are huge, and 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 uh, and I really. It led me to start investigating historic Christianity um, and not necessarily um, certain forms and traditions or even contrived Christianity in in some ways. Uh, And that was like started to give me little little inklings of hope. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, me and you have talked about uh, before is the women that suffer the most in these situations. Uh, because women often are make up the majority of the population of, of churches, right. um, black and white. And um, with the abuse of power mm-hmm. um, and the manipulation often, because most women are looking for either they're looking for a godly man mm-hmm. because they're not married to one. Um, they're not married at all. Um, so they they or they they've not grown up with one. So those kinds of things that that seemingly deficiency in the minds of some lends the lends um, some women to lean in Mm. and overlook things um, from from their leaders. Um, How have you seen that play out and 
um, for other women that you've seen in church growing up and for your mom? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think <clears throat> there's so I mean, there's so much in that, Lisa. I mean, I feel like that um what I what I first of all, yep, I grew up every church I was in, it was definitely a, a preponderance of women <laughs> in the church. Um, and that was kind of commonplace. And I always felt like that several preachers would play off of that uh as well. Um I think I think that that in many ways it's a very easily manipulated environment in those cases, because people are longing for something that are good, right? They, they're longing for things that are good. They're longing for what it means to have good, godly men around and have close and companionship and all those things. Um, but there's also this aspect of uh, going grocery shopping when you're hungry. <laughs> and and there's a, there's a danger. And when you're starving and you're just, you're thirsty and you're, and you're, and you're just desperate for something, um, almost anything will do. And I think that, 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 uh, there has been kind of this in the church, there's been like a lowest common denominator that's always been offered. And people have just been like, yo, this is the best thing that we can have. So I'll take it. And then I'll start defending it. And, and, and so I think I saw that with, in my mom, I think that where, the way that looked for my mom was my mom was somebody who she, she, uh, graduated from high school valedictorian at the top high school in Detroit, Cast Tech. Um, and she was this, this, I mean, rising star valedictorian college scholarships out the wazoo. Uh, but she wanted to be a mom and, and wanted to be a wife. And, and none of those things are horrible things, bad things at all. They're, they're, uh, esteemable things. Uh, and she wanted to, she wanted to do that. And so she got, uh, she got married at 19, uh, and, and, uh, had me at 20. And for for her um, and for a lot of people, it's like, well, there might be these other deficiencies in character, uh, but at least this person's a provider. Uh, at least this person, you know, at least they won't just vanish. And those are issues, too, but at least they won't vanish. Right. Um, if, if they can just have these real basic things, I can I can deal with the rest. Which is a lie, but but but, and I think a lot of the women around my mom would all some women would encourage her to 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 hold those other things so highly that you're willing to overlook the deficiencies. So it's like provision, and I think it's really important to to say that. And I think my mom learned that um, that provision alone isn't love. Like you can provide and not de- demonstrate genuine love. Now, love will bring provision. But provision doesn't automatically mean love and any of that. I think that she had to learn that. So a lot of a lot of women that I saw would just be like, well, this person is present. Um, they 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 show up. Uh, they are able to provide on some level. Uh, they're able to satiate whatever emotional void I'm feeling in the moment. Uh, and so if, if, if I have to keep coming back to the well to keep feeling that I'll deal with whatever else. Uh, comes my way. And clearly that's a broad brush. I know that there are plenty of folks who are like, you know, I'm not with that. I just saw a large majority of folks that did. And then I also saw men who largely were the ones in in, in power and, and with, with, with those voices, the ones who had the mic, they saw that. And there was no sense of how to leverage or how to steward that privilege well. It was almost like, how do I manipulate this privilege for my own um, for, 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 for my own expediency. Uh, and so, and so then women became, became prey in, in those churches. Um, 
And I think that there that was something that was a real, even for women that I knew growing up who were walking away from the church, that was a big deal because the amount of um, sexual assault that would happen, uh, the way churches would handle sexual assault in the, in, in, in the churches I was in, the way churches would handle uh, women who were getting impregnated by staff members at these churches. I went to a couple of churches where women would get impregnated and would come to make sure that people uh, own up and be fathers to these kids. And those churches would just pay to have their abortions or have them relocated uh, to cities like Atlanta. And, and it was almost like women were treated not as image bearers, but they were treated as commodities. And that was kind of, and young men grow up seeing that and grow up saying, okay, this is what biblical manhood and biblical womanhood looks like, commodifying one another uh, for each other's expediency in a way. And and so it was very damaging and, and it really put a sour taste in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that you, that you shared um, and when you, when you um, grow when we were talking growing up, it's kind of how you internalize that and kind of maybe in some ways try to hold your father accountable. Yeah. Um, How, how was that experience? Uh, That was a, that's that, that was a very difficult, it was very difficult because there was a time in my life where when I was when I was younger, my whole thing was I don't want to be those horrible things that I saw. I don't want to be these bad things. I don't want to be someone who manipulates, exploits. I don't want to. I don't want to be someone who uh, is a philanderer. I don't want to see just a lot of the things that I saw. Not even just from my father, but many men. But specifically there, I I, I had to deal with the fact that it's not enough for me to have a clear vision of what I don't want to be. I, I, I ended up having to learn that. You can't lead anything based on what you don't want to be. Um, you need to have a clear picture of what it is that you want to be or what, or what it is that you're called to be. And so it took a, a while for me to realize, like, what am I actually called to? Like, I'm, I'm very clear on what I know that I'm called out of and what I'm called from. Uh, but but I'm not clear on what I'm actually called to. So in other words, it's not enough for me to work really hard to not be that person it's got to be like, what does it mean to actually want to look like Jesus? And and that was a picture, that was a juxtaposition I had not really encountered yet. I just knew everything I didn't want to be. And so teenage years, and even in college, and even in the military, there was this whole, I had this clear view of don't want to be that, don't want to be that, don't want to be that. When I got married, it was like, okay, this is the husband I don't want to be. Uh, became a father, here's the father I don't want to be, right? but not really a sense of what I, what, what God was calling me to be. And, and so even, even within churches, like the kind of churches I would try to go to, I'd be like, okay, well, I know the kind of churches I don't want to go to because I knew what was damaging there. Uh, but then all of that, just running from something as opposed to being called and running to something, it, it just created another host of problems for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think you, when you, mentioned that that reminded me of the fact that for for preachers I know and people that I know that are in churches that get involved in things it's often because they see too much too soon Mm. and um I know plenty of young preachers who behave the way they behave because the people that they looked up to um kind of tarnished uh, 
what it looks like in their minds. It's like if I if I come to a place That's right. expecting people to be a certain way. That's right. Um, and I have this high view of you because you can preach and you this and that. And then when you invite me in to hang out with you, you're completely different. And when that happens, you're still in a young, impressionable stage. Mm-hmm. It shatters everything. And then you're like, well, if God is still using them, yeah. then this is must be how we need to behave because everybody's looking for like footsteps to follow in. That's right. And so for a lot of people, I lament because they've seen so much so, so soon. Yeah. And it has caused them to walk in a way that's not pleasing to God. And it's all in the guise of mm. God's use of me is God's approval of me. Mm. Um, and when you think that God's use of you is his approval of you, then you could get in a lot of different messes because mm. God uses the devil. Amen. And he doesn't approve him either. Right. I mean, mm. the Bible talks about, um, I remember reading, uh, when Saul was running after David mm. and the Bible says that in order, basically in order for David to get away, God let the spirit, his spirit overshadow Saul after he was rejected. Mm. And the Bible says Saul began to prophesy mm. <laughs> under the spirit of God. That's right. That it was a distraction to get David away. That's right. And so if you mistake God using you to proclaim and <laughs> filling his spirit, mm. you can be deceived because just be his use of you, his use of Saul in that moment didn't mean that Saul was al- wasn't already rejected, um, but it just he had a purpose. Mm. Um, and mm. so I think a lot of people confuse God's use with his approval. Mm. And that's how they get involved in these these things. Mm. Um, did you see that with other young preachers growing up? Because you grew up with preachers. And you, um, <laughs> if you grew up in church, then somebody that you grew up with yep. is, is obviously a preacher now. Did Absolutely. you see that same thing happen to people? Oh yeah. I, I saw it. I saw preachers and musicians, right? Um, because those, you know, I, I think it's, it's interesting that we, we often confuse gifts of the spirit for the fruit of the spirit and, and, and what should be, and, and even the churches I was in, that's, that was the litmus test. For whether or not you were anointed was whether or not those gifts were on display. Um, but it rarely was a litmus test whether or not the fruit of the spirit was on display. And so I I really I saw a lot of that. I saw a ton of gifts and I saw a deficiency in fruit. Um, and growing up in that, uh, you it's easy to just fall in like, OK, my if, if I want to be a preacher, I want to be a singer, I want to be a play the organ, I want to play the keys, I want to play the drums. Um, People are going to care more about me based on the service I can render to them, um, not uh, not based on what it means to be a servant, per se, a servant hearted person. But if I can render a service that can bring me remuneration and bring me uh, 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 all kinds of uh, accolades, then then people are going to know and God's going to know, hey, I'm his because look at what I've done for you, God. Look at what people are, are praising me for. Um and even even in a very subtle way, it's like we could say it's all about Jesus. I just want God to get the praise. But on the inside, it's like they know I got to be one of his because they love the way I just sang that song. And 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 that piece I saw, I saw preachers. Look, I saw preachers all the time 
uh, I, I was in churches where preachers would be would preach the paint off the walls and then have multiple people lined up at their hotel afterward. I, I saw meetings where preachers would actually plan on which women they were going to be with afterward and almost divvying them up uh, like like groceries and 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 just seeing that and no sense of uh there was never any sense of brokenness or no sense of shock or no sense of like whoa maybe we shouldn't do this it was just kind of like this is what this is what happens like there's this idea god like you said if god's using me then he must be approving what i'm doing because if he if he if he was not approving of what i was doing then he'd stop me or something would happen there would be some kind of consequence but I haven't seen any consequences, so I must be pleasing him so far. Yeah. <sighs> um, that story, you know, just calling, lining up women. Uh, it, it reminds me of an episode we've done before mm-hmm. uh, with my friend um, Dion. Um, and he talks about how he was summoned mm-hmm. by a, a church elder. Um, and he was just at high school and the elder um, was a married man and somebody went to get him um, and for the elder because they saw him in the choir stand. And so it is, it it is a very real reality that people have experienced. And I, I don't want people to walk away from this episode thinking, Oh, and the episodes we've done, where we're like, oh, well, we're harping because there are a host yeah. of excellent oh, yeah. pastors and preachers. Absolutely. Um, more good than bad. Absolutely. But oftentimes, uh, you yourself is a pastor, mm-hmm. our pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, my father is a pastor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know plenty of other good pastors and mm-hmm. leaders. That's right. But at some point, we have to talk about this because it is a cancer. That's right. And if you don't deal with it, then the world thinks you're being hypocritical. That's right. Um, you know, when we think about the Catholic Church, we think about uh, pedophilia. That's right. Uh, we <laughs> think about right now. That's what we think about. That's but right. the majority of priests probably have nothing to do with that. That's right. But because they didn't deal with that, then it comes and this this the reflection on the whole. Yeah. Because whatever you don't deal with. It continues to grow. Sin grows in the dark. That's right. Um, and so when you don't shed light on it, it continues to grow. And then people are damaged and like, okay, so you don't see this going on. And there's a continual injustice. That's right. You know, um, mm-hmm. I, I love to use the illustration, especially when we're talking about black churches. It's like, okay, we'll say we're quick to, we, I'm quick to say hmm. black lives matter. Hmm. And I'm not condemning. I'm not saying that. I know that there's a large portion of the police that are pro- are good people. Yep. Yep. I'm not saying that. But if we don't take care of the ones That's right. that are the bad, then black black and brown people continue to be shot down in the street. Right. And it's the same way when it comes to church. That's right. So that's why we're continuing to speak on it because just like it, that's one of the reasons Jay Z has a difficult time with Christianity that and so many others. Yeah. Because okay. we don't talk about it. You we'll know, talk about church hurt as far as like, oh, a Usher told me not to wear something. Yeah. Oh, you know, those are the low hanging fruits. That's right. But when it begins to shift the power structures, yeah. 
then we're we're silent on yeah, it. That's it. That's it. I, Lisa, one thing that you said that just really hit me is, you know, I think about I think about how in, in many ways they, these kind of conversations are also helpful, even for pastors out there who might be in the midst of some form of brokenness and they're so afraid to bring it to anyone because honestly honestly uh, even if churches do try to handle these kinds of things much of their responses are only punitive and not restorative and, and there's something to be said about having uh wh- wh- whatever people's forms of church governance um wh- whatever those are there needs to be something in place so that there's a plan of of restoration when there's genuine repentance versus just nothing but punitive damages. And and I think that if there's something safe, there's a safety in being a pastor, even if you're in the midst of brokenness or unrepentant sin to be able to go, this is an environment that I can go into and bring my sin to and repent from this sin, knowing that there will be a path of rest. It may not necessarily always mean restoration back into the pulpit. It could, but but more than anything else, what does it mean to be properly restored into the community of God? I think that because there's not a lot of that in, in, in some churches, I think that people feel the pressure to keep hiding it, the pressure to keep defending it because they're so afraid of what it would mean to be ostracized from the community completely. Um, and because there's not a whole lot of paths for genuine restoration into the community, everybody's just afraid of being punished. Mm, yeah, and definitely. Mm. I think you hit the nail on the head. If there's no path back, nobody's going to confess. Period. I mean, confession, really, it has a lot. I um, past Bishop Jakes was talking mm. to Keon Henderson. Hmm. Um, and, and, um, Keon Henderson is a big pastor in, um, Houston. And he was talking about his father being a pastor and he kind of was the outside child Hmm. and why he didn't, um, you know, honestly say, you know, this is the reason why, um, basically his, his father, I think kind of get a roundabout way. You can't destroy it would destroy everything if I confess this, you know, uh, my kids wouldn't have food because I wouldn't be able to feed them because yeah. I wouldn't have a job. Yeah. Um, it w- when all of your eggs are in one basket financially, that's one of the reasons financial um, responsibility, family, children, yeah. um, not wanting to blow everything up uh, essentially keeps people in a place of, um, of silence. That's right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's absolutely true. And it's listen for those who are uh, prayerfully uh, figuring out if they're being called into ministry. Like ministry is one of the few professions, right? If you want to call it that, it's one of the few areas where um, certain <laughs> certain missteps and and moral judgments or, or bad judgments can actually cause you to lose your job. Like you can be the number one. Uh, you can you can be a partner in the largest law firm in the in the country and be have all these other issues on the side. It will never cause you to lose your job. It will never cause you, you know it will never uh, affect or impinge your ability to care for your family. Like it won't do that. It might cause other issues, but not that. But this is one where very much there is a major. The economic stakes are high for folks in ministry. 
And and so I get that. And I, and I see I've watched folks with fear and trembling go. And it's easy to go. Well, you should have thought about that before, which is true. People should have. But to understand before you get into ministry to know the stakes are this high. I mean, it really is. It's uh, to, to and I think it's helpful to say, hey, if I'm going to go into anything again, I want to make sure there's safe accountability. It's good for my own soul to have safe accountability before I get into ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... I remember that uh, when the thing with Zachary Timms happened and he died and they were interviewing Reva, his wife, his ex-wife, and she talked about the ways in which even when the scandal happened and everything happened, she said that the, the people in the church were so in love with his giftedness that they pushed him back into the pulpit Man. before he was ready, even though they didn't they basically neglected that, like, continue, maybe take this time off to to see about your family, to yeah. make sure y'all are good. It was like, no, he's done so much for me as a dynamic speaker and, and leader, and he's blessed my life, and I need that weekly encouragement. I don't care about his family. I don't care about his kids. Mm-hmm. I don't care about his life, because it, it, eventually, because he didn't take the time off, cost him his life right. um that they pushed him back into that do you do you think there's a dynamic where the congregation has to take responsibility because sometimes people people in the pews don't want leaders to be held accountable because of what they get from them that's correct which is i think just as damaging to them <clears throat> um um so, so what would you what would you say to that yeah i, I would i would i would wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that, um, I honestly think that for, uh, for congregants and churches to all, and this, you know, pastors needs to need to be preaching this as well, but congregants need to always be thinking, am I coming as a family member or am I coming as a consumer? If I'm coming as a consumer, then all I care about is the product that, that, that you're, that you're peddling to me. And if you're good at peddling said product, I really don't care who the person is peddling it. I care to the to the extent that they're good at getting me the product, but I don't care about anything else. Family should care more about that. It's not just mom, you do a great job of making dinner or dad, you make you could do a good job of making dinner. I love coming here because I get good dinner. It's not I love coming here because I have a great relationship with you and I want to know that you're healthy and that you're good. I think that and part of that is our problem. We have definitely turned church and maybe it's been that for a long time church into a into a marketplace where goods and services are exchanged and when those goods and goods and services are uh, uh, um, palatable for us then I really don't care what you're having to do in the same way that we don't care about whatever sweatshops are in place before we bought a pair of Jordans we don't care about what has to happen to get the elements to make our iPhones and China's creating suicide nets when people are jumping out because of the pace at which they're working we don't care about that because I'm getting a great product in my iPhone. Well, I think we do the same thing with church. I'm getting a great sermon. I'm getting a great song. I'm getting a great feeling. There's a lot of eyes in that. But if I'm thinking about family, then it's like, how are we doing? What does it mean on Monday through Saturday uh, for your family? And so sometimes that might mean, uh, that might mean, hey, listen, can we make sure that the pastor and their family uh, have something, a line item in the budget for regular family therapy and counseling. And, and can we do that before a cataclysmic event happens? 
Can we just have that as a regular checkup? Like pe people will pay for business coaches all the time. People will pay for minute. There's even church. I'm a church planter. There's church planting coaches all the time. Is it, should we not make that mandatory to say, hey, listen, we want to make sure. I realize that if you're a pastor and you're up in front of tons of people, there's no way you can share everything out with everybody. It wouldn't even be wise to do that. But can we ensure that you have a safe place to be able to connect, uh, to be able to share some of these painful things? Is there is, is it wise for us to, to ensure, hey, listen, I don't need to know everything. I don't need to know where all your money goes. Can we just make sure that there's a line item to make sure you and your family are getting regular check-ins? Um, because, because ultimately, we turn pastors into mercenaries, and we don't care anything about their lives. We just care about the product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that is such a disservice to them and their families yeah. if we are consumers in that, in that way. And how did you see that play out in, in your family, especially as it relates to y'all and your mom, when your yeah. mom was trying to constantly voice, mm. you know, this is going on, Yeah, there needs to be some kind of intervention yeah. I mean, I think I think that um, I mean, I think some of this speaks to um, the church, especially the black church and mental health. And and so I do know that, like, um, and my dad would admit this. I mean, I think that there was a whole lot of there, there's all of this. There's a stigma surrounding mental health. And whenever there's issues of emotional stress or mental issues, I think that people always think it must be something spiritual. It's a, it's a, it's a demon. It's this, it's that. Let's pray it away. Let's memorize enough scripture so that we can push that out. Um, and, and that really is just, it's a function in many ways of just bad theology. I mean, when the heart doesn't work well, we don't just pray, we pray, but we believe that God's given wisdom to doctors. And so we pray for those doctors. Um, if, if the fall has affected every part of our body, then why would we not believe that the fall has affected our mind, right? So, so I think that my mom felt really strongly that there was help. There were help. There was help that was needed, both spiritually and medically. And I think that um, I think, and my dad would even talk about how there was a bit of shame that would be attached to even getting help or getting medical help for stuff like that, taking medicine for stuff like that. Um, and I, and I, I think that, I think that for my, I think for my mom, I think that she felt, she felt hopeless and helpless after a while because she was, she was eventually speaking up to say, Hey, these things are happening. But when you, but when the leaders, right, the people who are the theological giants in your community, the ones who are the great purveyors of truth are saying, it's not as bad as you think it is, or, or you need to be praying more, fasting more. Then you internalize and you start thinking, this has more to do with me. Like, I, this is a problem that I have. This is something that I'm responsible for. I think my mom internalized that and it dealt with, it, it caused a lot of emotional anguish for her as well. Uh, so, so yeah, I think, I think that, I think I saw, I saw my mom start losing a lot of hope that she didn't lose hope in the, she didn't lose hope in that to the point where she's like, I'm done with church. But I think she lost hope in the idea that the church is a is a real transforming agent for the men. I think that's what I I think some women have felt that too. I think that it's like I can get what I still need to get from church. I just now have adjusted my expectations that what really needs to happen in adjusting some of the men, namely my husband or ex-husband, I'm not expecting that anymore. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I've heard that. Um, it's funny. I have friends that are in church hmm. that have given up on the fact on um, church men being faithful. So mm-hmm. they'll say, like, they'll say, my mom told me that men in the church aren't faithful. <laughs> and Oof. I'm thinking one friend in particular mm-hmm. who her dad told her that. I believe so, it. So when you're a young girl and your dad tells you that, that sticks with you. You oh, know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, like, Lisa. like, it was like, I think she was under like 10 years old. So that is an, an impressionable thing. And so when you're going in, That's right. your expectations are so low. That's right. That's for um, the men of God. Um, Lisa, I got to tell you, I grew up, I grew up where the things my mom would hear and even, even girls my age, when I was a kid, teenagers, and, and when, when we were growing up, it, it was not uncommon. And I'm sure you you have heard this or can relate to this. It was not uncommon for if a man did cheat, it would often start with what she's not doing or what, you know, it's and as a matter of fact, in one church, uh, it was common for them to say, like, it's the woman's job to keep the man saved. It's her job to keep him saved. It's her job to keep him from roaming and and, and prowling and praying elsewhere. Like it, it was her job. And so if he ended up stepping out, what in your what were you not doing? There was something in your job that was deficient. And and so it created all of this shame and this pressure. Cause because then you're like, and then it was this acceptance of like, I remember hearing this too, like, well, a man is a man. And that's it. Like there was no sense of like it was also his job to be that new creature. It was like it's so it's your job to be the transformed one, and basically his job is just to hang around and you just find a way to survive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 as you were talking, I started thinking about my friends that are PKs and how much sometimes. Churches don't consider um, the children mm. Um, mm. and what they go through or have experienced because sometimes the preacher is a PK and he becomes the, the next in line. Right. And that trauma that he's experienced at home is carried over into the way he leads. Right. Um, and then he has to shepherd the same people. Um, he or she has to shepherd the same people who damaged them. Yeah, that's right. Um, that and that's heavy yeah. because it's compounded trauma. Um, how have you seen that play out? I I feel like to a T verbatim the way you just stated it is exactly the way I've seen it. I feel like um, and, and honestly, it made me question a lot. I mean, it made me it made me question church governance and made me question, you know, um, uh, whether or not it is even a biblical, and I know that's a loaded word, but is it even biblical to transfer power and authority that way? Like, does DNA connote leadership? Does DNA connote kind of the anointing of the leader kind of thing? Um, and and, and it, it was frustrating because, look, if you're a PK, you were raised with that pressure, too, of knowing Hey, eventually I'm going to have to be, I will be expected to be this, right? And so I don't want to let people down by letting them know that I'm not going to do this. 
I, I think I think I've seen that a good deal. I also have seen to the second part of your point. I've seen it where uh, w- women, specifically women, but not only women, have been abused by a young man, knowing that he has to be. Um, he's going to be the pastor. And when he becomes the pastor, there's this sense of like, she has to either stuff it, stuff all of that damage that's never been truly reconciled, right? And there's always this pressure to to forgive um, without genuine reconciliation. And so there's always this pressure of like calling, looking at forgiveness as just pure passivity, and so then, so then you basically create rhythms of contrived reconciliation, but not real ones. And so no one ever knows uh, how to genuinely reconcile anymore. So, so then you don't. How do you pass reconcile? How do you pass rhythms of reconciliation to children when you've never really taken part in it, and no one's ever encouraged you to do it? And so now it's like, no, just practice forbearance. Yes, he might have abused you. He might, uh, you know, he may have been the one that to do wrong, to do you wrong. Uh, but your job is to just overlook it now because he's the man of God. And I've seen people internalize that and be very hurt by it. Mm-hmm. One of the transitions you in your development is you move from a majority black context um, to a to a majority of white context at one time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how was though how was that experience re-traumatizing because it's and in one sense you're leaving one uh uh experience of church hurt yeah. and then going to another experience Man. that's re-traumatizing i mean it's traumatizing you asking me that right now like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's i mean i think i think that um i think it was i think that so to your point i mean i, I as i said earlier it was this idea of like let me run from things instead of running two things or being called two things. And so like, because I had seen some of the pain and suffering that I had seen in the churches I was raised in, I was like, well, let me just open up and be a little bit more broad in what other churches I might go to. And maybe I can run over here to these church contexts and at least I'll leave those problems behind. Uh, But then I'll end up seeing new problems. So, you know, while I left certain areas of the church, I was in the churches I was in, I left, I thought I was leaving behind certain forms of manipulation, certain forms of spiritual abuse, certain forms of that. I thought I was leaving that behind. Uh, And then I ended up exchanging it for new versions of that. And so being in predominantly white spaces, I ended up, I didn't realize it at the time, but I realized, okay, great. Like these folks seem to value X, Y, and Z about me, but I'm realizing that I'm still being manipulated and controlled to a degree because I think at that point, people were constantly trying to figure out, is this person truly one of our tribe? And so it's like, it, it turned into like, how much deprogramming should we be doing to to ensure that whatever he's coming from doesn't follow him here? So so all of the great things, I, I don't want to miss, I don't want anyone to misunderstand so much of who I am and so much of the great things of the church experiences I had, I would never exchange at all. I love it and I'm thankful for it. And I try to incorporate that now as a pastor. I would never exchange those things. But I think that that in these, in a lot of predominantly majority culture, white culture churches, there's this subtle and not so subtle expectation that I will summarily dismiss everything that it meant to be raised and 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 grown uh, in uh, a predominantly black, all black church environment. 
And I think that there's a lot of things culturally that I felt the pressure to just hide, push down and kind of abrogate because I just knew that there was no way that I could bring all of me to the table. Because if I bring all of me to the table, they're going to be like, oh, no, 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 no. We weren't. We didn't sign up for that. Oh, that's too much. We've got to we've got to stifle that voice. And then things will come up. There will be things I would say. There were things that I would try to bring up and realize early on. Oh, and I'm not saying this is everyone, but I'm just saying how I experienced certain things. I always got the feeling. I always got the feeling that um, whether it's my my black, uh, my, my, my black giftedness or my my black voice, my uh, my black uh, uh, w- ways of of communicating a thing; those things will be appropriated. But my black personhood wasn't wasn't appreciated, uh, and so and so I felt like this pressure to always just. It wasn't necessarily like let me forget who I am and let me uh, uh, even speak against where I come from. It's more of. I realize that I have a small circle of people that I can actually share all of my heart. And these are circles that I can't. And the times when I've tried to, I had some really traumatizing things said back to me. Uh, I'll give a great example. I, I, um, the, the church that, that I, that I was a part of before planting the church here. um, I had, I would, I would do some teaching for their elder, for their elderly uh, folks. And so in teaching, uh, um, they they enjoyed my teaching. They enjoyed what I had shared with them. And they went to the pastor who had set it up for me to teach there and said, hey, we just want to let you know, we are so thankful that you let this colored boy teach us. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know this. I didn't hear it. And one of the other pastors kind of chuckling came over to me like a couple months later and was like, hey, did you hear, you know, it wasn't that funny when such and such, such and such. And I'm like, what do you mean? I didn't hear this, what, what was said. And they were like, oh, they recounted the story to me. Oh, he said this and color boy, da, 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 da. And I was like, it, it stopped me in my tracks, not necessarily because I was so shocked, but because of the, the, the pass that was given to those folks to be up to. So in their mind, they were like, well, there was no malicious intent. And so we know that they didn't mean it in the way that like a KKK member would have meant it. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, this has nothing to do with whether or not it's a malicious intent. Intent and impact are two different things. If there is a disparate impact in some ways, if there's a way in which you are talking about image bearers that are harmful, that's a discipleship opportunity. But but because this church uh, doesn't see that as a discipleship issue, uh, they they see it for me as something I should just overlook and just forbear. And so I was just like, man, like, like I, even now, I'm still not seen as the image bearer that I should, because if I was, they would mourn that before it ever got to me. They would have been like, hey, listen, um, I get that that may be how you were raised and that may be something you were accustomed to, but this is a fellow image bearer. And it actually, it actually blasphemes the very image of God when you speak about another image bearer that way. But that wasn't the case. And so it was like realizing that I'm having to exist in an environment like that, where I have little to no power to change the structures that are. And then I have to figure Now, Thankfully, I just knew I was there on short time. I was there before getting out to plant. Um, And that was one of the reasons why I knew I wanted to plant um, a a diverse church uh, and not a white church like most of like most of the churches that have been planted out of there, because I realized that. Man, there are a lot of people, even at our church now, who 
are people of color, black folks who came out, who were a part of white churches that are dealing with racialized PTSD right now. And they're like, to feel like that our black personhood is acknowledged as actual believers, it matters. But it took a while for me to be able to realize, like, I just exchanged a form of trauma for another trauma because I just kept running from stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that is the what I see, um, especially in the uh, in like black reformed or, or more black evangelical spaces. It is a I mean, you've talked about this as well. Um, there is a this seems to be how the pendulum swings. So their story may start in. Right. I started off in the black church. I didn't feel like it was. I've seen a lot there. I didn't think it was as rigorous as I wanted it to be, or I felt like something was lacking. That's right. Uh, but I didn't. I didn't necessarily leave properly. I left with trauma. I left with stuff in my heart and bitterness that I never dealt with. Then yeah. I just pendulum swung to white space, thinking, yeah. um, "I'm gonna. This is gonna be better." I, it's kind of like, oh, okay, they they have it together. This kind of white savior complex, That's and right. then you realize that they're just as, um, they just have as much. They they have their own set of issues with, right. um, not only racism but sexual abuse and all of that, um, a misuse of power, misuse of funds. But you don't know that because you're not a part of the community. So you leave one community going to another thinking right. that it's going to be different. That's right. And in the actuality, <laughs> you just find more of the same. And honestly, Lisa, some of the, some of that, so, so much of that, I think, is rooted, too, in what what appears to be safer. Right. Like mm-hmm. like ostensibly, it looks like, OK, in certain not everywhere, but in certain majority culture contexts, some of these structures, they look like, OK, these things are in place and that looks safe. And this looks this it looks. But but when you get in, you realize it's a lot of the same stuff. It's just a bunch of different language used. Yeah. Uh, it's it's maybe the paint is different and the furniture is arranged different, but it's the same broken house. And in some ways. And and I started seeing it took it took me a while because I had been so damaged in other spaces that and mind you, all of this is happening while I'm in the military. So I'm moving every few years, living from I'm in I'm going from Texas to Mississippi to St. Louis to Alaska to Hawaii, and I'm going to these different churches, all kinds of different churches, all the time. And I'm and I'm really, really broken in the midst of it, not knowing how to engage this because there's no safe place. And this is where I feel like this is where I feel like being black in those spaces made it even harder. I would argue it's even harder because you really don't feel like you can find anybody to process that kind of pain with. I mean, the pain I dealt with even in the black church, there were other people that I could process that pain with. They may not have been able to do anything about it, but I could process it. I didn't even have a place to process it in a lot of these white spaces. Yeah, because you don't want to you you don't want to. You don't want to mention old trauma. There's a sense right. of I can't share trauma to white people because they're not safe. That's exactly right. You don't tell our business to them. And so you keep it all in. Um, and then you only it's like what stays what happens in that in a black space stays in a black space. And legitimately so, you have traumas because it seems like that when you do expose or transparent, it's a re-trauma, it's re-traumatizing. Yeah. And then you 
as black people, we're always looking out for our own people. That's right. And it's like white people already have negative stereotypes about black people. That's so right. it's like we could talk about things that are going on, but you can't talk about it. It's like, you know, that's right. I could yeah. pick on I could pick on my brother. Yep. But let somebody outside. You bet not. <laughs> <laughs> you can't they're not saying anything. And so if you shift a space, then you feel boxed in. That's right. Like, I can't like so I think that's what you're you're articulating. Absolutely. It's suffocating. And and I think that and it, it does create you start, at least for me, it creates a longing for this. There there is, listen, there's all kinds of forms of community and we get that, but there's there is also a sense of community in in a shared struggle. And when you know that there's a struggle that, that everyone there can understand and you don't have to you don't have to uh, uh, explain and do all the teaching to make them understand why you're hurting. Um, there's a safety in that. And I feel really I felt really I didn't feel like I was able to have that. And yeah. at times because of the circles I have to go in and out of, there are certain circles I go into that I realize this won't be a safe place for me. Um, and for different reasons, if I'm in predominantly uh, some of the communities I grew up in in church, for different reasons, I may not feel safe, but it's a it's a different kind of fear, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you've experienced trauma from all these different spaces and we haven't even told a fraction of your story. Um, <laughs> but how did you how did you overcome it? Because now you're a pastor. Yeah. Church, you you didn't leave church. And often when we talk about traumas. When we talk about church hurt, one of the things I want to talk about it from one of the spaces I want to talk about it from is a redemptive space. Yeah. Um, because oftentimes the only people that are talking about this, the depth of what's going on, are the people on the outside that have left. Right. <laughs> um, and oftentimes they're not heard because it's like once you leave, I mean, you're not affecting us, you're not contributing, you're not a part of our committees, yeah. you're not giving money, so your voice doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but for those who who have been through extensive trauma like yourself and have chosen to stay um, in church and not only stay in church, but become a pastor, <laughs> uh, which I think that is miraculous in itself that you have encountered all of these different experiences mm-hmm. and you can share a little bit of them yeah. uh, with us. If you told all of it, then people probably wouldn't believe you would even step foot in the church. I mean, after I was listening to you, I was like, man, I mean, if you told me you didn't go to church anymore, I would really understand. Um, <laughs> what, what, um, how, how did you get here? What What was your thought process? Was this your healing process? Yeah. I realized that when you have intense trauma that's happened through childhood and that's connected to spirituality and God, that it is, it is really a lifelong journey. It's not like, oh, I heal at this moment, everything was gone and I'm, everything is okay. It's really a lifelong walk. What what has that journey been like for you? Yeah, I think, and we were talking, I said, you know, um, it has very much been kind of an already not yet kind of principle for me. I think it's something that I'm having to deal with daily. I think that, um, you know, when certain things continue to happen, it made me really have to evaluate like, what is, what is this for me? And I think we all get to those places and we land in different places. Um, when, um, you know, there's something I've had to remind myself of over and over again. Um, w- when certain hurtful things happen, my mom passed away um, last week. It, it made uh, six years since she, since she passed. And 
when she passed away young at 54 and some of it, some of it was uh, uh, connected to some of the damages and some of the things that had happened to her body and so many things that were connected that I've always felt like if my mom had been in a church where her voice was heard and there was a people who could advocate for her. And frankly, there were both men and women who were able to actually speak into with some degree of authority to her, to her, to her uh, what was happening in her life. I think she'd be here. And so there's a lot of this pain and frustration because I'm like, man, like I could see why somebody would go, this stuff happened at the hands of the church or this stuff happened under the nose of the church and the church didn't do anything. And, and a lot of us have those kinds of stories and they're legitimate complaints and legitimate lament. But there's this, this analogy that I've had to use and I've had to preach to myself and I preach to other people. And it's this, it's, you know, imagine if I, imagine if I called you up and I was like, Lisa, I have this incredible tool that is just going to change the world. Now in real life, I'm not even a handyman. You don't want me putting up walls for you, but, but let's say I got this incredible tool and this tool is like amazing and it can, it'll hammer nails. It'll, it'll screw in screws. It can paint. It can, uh, it can, it can wash, it can wash carpet. It can do all these things. And it's amazing. And you've never seen anything like it. And they, it, there's nothing made like it. And I come, and you're like, great, come over to the house. Show me what it does. And I come over and I take the tool and I go to your brand new car and I just destroy it. And you look at that and you go, I'm never trusting tools like that again. And, and while at first it makes sense because you're like, that tool caused me pain. But the issue was never the tool. The issue was the fool that was misusing the tool. The issue was the broken tool wielder, not the tool itself. And so I had to keep asking myself, God, am I frustrated with the tool is the historic gospel and the historic New Testament church? Is that to blame for this? Or is it the broken people who are misusing or abusing said church and theology? Because if I can separate those two, now it's hard and I have to keep preaching it back to myself and I have to keep going, God, if if your word is true, and if it's true that the fall not only affects, but infects everything, then it's going to infect people in the church too. And while there are things that need to be changed and things that need to be called out, those are things that actually are afforded in the scriptures. The Bible gives us those things, what it means to call out sin. We remember in 1 Corinthians where there was a man who was in an illicit affair with his stepmother likely, and, and the church did nothing, and Paul called him out for that. So so we realize that, that, that the New Testament church and God has given us uh, all of the areas of recourse that should be in play to be able to protect people. It's just broken people haven't done it. And so I've had to go, Lord, help me not Help me not uh, get to a place where I'm willing to dismiss the tool altogether, as opposed to recognizing the broken people that have been responsible for breaking community and breaking my heart. And I think that's something I have to keep praying over and over again and to be able to repent for all the ways I could have ever contributed as a broken person to, to people. Maybe not in those ways, but even in little micro ways of just things that I overlook or things that I don't speak up on or things that I'm guilty of. If there's something, if there's a way in which I uh, and, and remaining humble in that, I think that the definition that we've been using at our church for humility is the ability to say, I would never put that past me. And if I can, if I can, if I can function as a, as a church congregant and as a pastor that says, I wouldn't put that past me. Now I realize the accountability that's always necessary. 
I'm, I'm realizing now, like, so if, so if you come to me and you say, hey, I was really hurt by X, Y, and Z, I don't start with what a lot of churches start with. No, 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 you didn't understand. No, no, no. The, the thing is, if you understood the scriptures this way, you wouldn't be hurt or you wouldn't feel this way. No, it starts with, you know, you might be wrong, you might be right, but I would not put it past me that I may have hurt you in that way because I realize that I'm not fully sanctified yet. And that's the humility I've had to bring for myself and pray for for myself and then to be able to kind of look at the broken church with as well. Yeah. And I love how you use uh, the definition of humility uh, as I wouldn't put it past me, because I think that oftentimes. What what offense does is it sometimes feeds into our self-righteousness and pride. That's right. That's right. Um, I can remember with the situation I had with the person I was dating um, that was a preacher. His father was notoriously known for doing those same things to to women. Mm. And he would always talk to me about the ways in which he hated what his dad did legitimately, like with tears. Yeah. And he was trying so much not to become like him. That he became him because what hurt does is it magnifies Mm. others' offense. That's right. To the point where you start not paying attention to your own character and your own steps. Mm. Mm. And you're bound to follow what you've seen. That's right. If you don't don't put things in place and you don't deal with that that hurt. Um, Because it seems that forgiveness if, if unforgiveness makes you repeat the offense that, um, and i think people don't realize that so it's kind of like okay you can hate what they did that's right but you'll end up doing the same thing if you don't allow yourself to get healed from it that is that is like it, it's so true because what i've learned and i'm learning is that good well-intended willpower and even indignance towards like painful wrongdoing that you've seen, that'll never be enough to bring transformation for yourself. So so you can be angry and I'll never do that. I'll never do that. But if there's no group of people in accountable environments and communities where you can actually process and go, hey, listen, I'm humble enough to realize I wouldn't put that past me. So if you see any of those traits, any of those things that I've seen, that I've imbibed, that I'm now, that may begin to like embody themselves in me, if you see some of those things, can you call those out right away? I think what happens is when you're like, you're angry and I'm frustrated. I don't want to be that. I don't like that. What my dad did. I don't like what that pastor did. I'm so indignant that I think I could outrage myself out of ever being guilty of that. But it doesn't work that way. It actually has to work where there's this idea. First of all, I was never meant to be a Christian isolated. So I need to be in some form of community where I can admit, hey, here's my pain. Here's the things that have here. Here are all the things that were uh, the the antecedent of my pain. So when you see them come out, here's probably where it's coming from. And I need you to call it out whenever you see it, because I know that I'm, it's very likely that unchecked, I'll become the thing that I hated the most. Yeah. And I, I think about even Jay-Z telling his story and how he was talking about his grandfather hurting, obviously doing damage to their family. And he didn't go as far as because that's incest. Yeah, he didn't. He wasn't committing incest, but the damage he did to his wife. That's right. The damage he did to so many other women by just being a player throughout his course. He didn't he didn't turn he didn't commit incest, but he did damage women. That's right. And a lot of that came from the fact that he said I couldn't forgive him. 
And he eventually did damage to women, not in that same way, but it manifests in different ways. That's right. And so what we don't heal from, uh, we're destined to repeat. Mm. And not maybe not the same way, but other ways. That's right. Um, as as we're closing, because I mean, I think we've talked for <laughs> over an hour, <laughs> but I think it's going to be real helpful. Mm. One of the things that people are dealing with, and I run into so many people my age, millennials, mm. who have seen their parents be so gung ho and so holy in church, and not have that same reality at home. And they spent their whole time in church. We they're like we've been in church Sunday through Saturday, mm. and then it wasn't transformative to you. So why would I waste my time? That's right. Um, that kind of church hurt comes at the hands of parents That's right. who are sometimes preaching what they cannot live, um, and hard on people for doing the same thing that they've done. Yeah. Um. What word would you say to them? Those, those people that have experienced that at the hands of their their parents, yeah, and don't feel like church is a transformative place because the people that they've seen spend so much time in the place, yeah. not be transformed by it. Yeah, I think I think that so. I think that that you know you you'll see examples in the Old Testament where certain folks are responsible for repenting for the sins of elders and repentant people in the past. You see that with the sin of Achan, you see that Daniel repenting for the sins of his forefathers. We see examples of that. The first thing I would do is go as a, as a pastor, even though I saw that same thing, I think we need to be able to own that kind of hurt that as the church we have put on folks. I think that I would say to them what I've had to learn and I'm still learning. I think that a lot of, not everyone, but certain people in those generations there was a form of kind of works righteousness that would play into that. Like I am pleasing God. I'm going to be here. Even if it's not transforming me, this is almost like this is not, I don't think people would have said it this way, but they function in a way of like, I'm getting additional brownie points. I'm making God proud by doing this. Even if it exhausts me, even if it's life draining, there's this sense of almost making myself a martyr for the cause by just slaving away for the church, even at the expense of my family. And I think the first thing I would do is repent to on behalf of that or apologize on behalf of that and say, I know what it is to be in a family where if a dad is the pastor, the church is his mistress. Right. I know what it is to be able to see uh, what it to see mom and dad slave away and then come home and have no evidence of real transform. Like, I don't, I'm not saying they're like up in the middle of horrendous sin, maybe, but more so there's no evidence of like genuine joy together. And it's like, if y'all walked around with a sour face all the time, why do I want to be a part of that? Right. I would, I would definitely own that. And then I would say, it's really important to go to, 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 to identify what is transforming about the gospel and hold on to that. Look, praise the Lord that if you can see certain areas of traditional church, that maybe is not transformative, you should always be be ready to get rid of things that are transformative. You don't even have to besmirch the character of your parents in order to do that. You can just look and go, I, pr- I think I get why that was the case. I think I get why that was the rhythm that they were in. I see how unhealthy that was. And I don't know, maybe I can talk to them. Maybe I can't. But I know for me, I need to figure out if I believe the gospel is transformative, then I need to seek out what those rhythms of transformation are. 
I don't have an excuse to not seek out transformation because if the guy, if the Bible promises that I'm going to be a new creature and I'm going to be transformed, if the scripture says that's what the gospel does, then my job is to then say, Holy Spirit, do what you're going to do and continue to transform me. I don't have any excuse to quench the spirit's fire because I saw quenched fires elsewhere that I still need to be able to seek that out and go, Lord, whatever's not transformative, get rid of it. And I think this is where what, you, what what's, what's happening here with Jude 3, I think is so important because ultimately there is a big movement and this it's to a degree, it's fine. There's a movement uh, and this word that we use transparency that I feel like can be very dangerous if, cause right now it's like transparency means just sharing all my stuff, sharing my pain, sharing this and sharing some of my church hurt. Um, but if transparency doesn't lead to transformation, then it's just an, an exercise in voyeurism. It's like, I get to just look in and see, let everybody else look in and get a peek at pain in a weird sadomasochistic way without actually saying, and in my, in me being transparent, I'm doing this with the hopes of seeing genuine healing and transformation. So if you saw your parents and you saw a lack of transformation, be transparent about that pain for yourself, but then seek out what real rhythms of transformation really are. And who knows, maybe I've known people where they've had that talk, they've walked through that and even been very honest and candid with their parents. And they're like, mom, dad, I saw this, this actually did some damage to me. And I know parents who've actually sought out real transformation in their lives, even without necessarily indicting the character of people that they were around, but just going, I realize that this isn't genuine transformation for me. And me, 60, 70, 80 years old, I'm still seeking that out. Hmm. Do you have time for another question? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, For those pastors who are listening um, that may be in uh, deep, uh, Hmm. (laughs) in too deep, and it seems like I've got myself in a hole, there's a there's not one scandal, there's scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal on top of scandal. Mm. Um, because oftentimes when we talk about people that have been uh, the been in scandal, we don't talk about it, like you said, in a way where they could get out. There's redemption. Yeah. Um, it's almost like you're trash, yeah. but... <laughs> Often, a lot of what has happened has been seeing things too soon. Yes. Um, yeah. Getting caught up in somebody older teaching you the ropes, and the ropes were uh, very bad examples. Mm. Um, <clears throat> not knowing how to manage ministry, family, not knowing how to manage power, sometimes being tired and having so many obligations, people fall into sin just by That's right. being in demand. That's and you right. have so much coming at you that. In a weary time, uh, like when David is home, mm-hmm. um, he he does something very scandalous, yeah, uh, because he's not where he should be. That's right. Um, what 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 would your words be to them? Yeah, I, w- I would say that number one, we we live in this culture now where everybody's getting canceled, you know, um. And no matter where it is that you are, no matter what it is that you've done or what it is that you're doing, God doesn't seek to cancel you. He seeks to care for you. He seeks to draw you close to him and he seeks to restore you. And so and so to know that 
whatever it's it can be very difficult to once you get deep 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 down now you get to a point where you're like i need to keep performing because that's the only way to get people's attention away from other stuff they'll never i don't want people to know these other things so let me outperform my sin and that's exhausting that's why it gets to a place where we can feel so despondent and just completely fatigued and exhausted I think that what we said earlier is so important to be able to find safe places where real confession can happen. And I know pride is a hard thing, but if it means stepping away and and getting people around that can say, what does it mean to care for you and your family while you get legitimate help? Then, then, then you do that. You find people that are, and there are organizations out there that, that are very much about helping to give, sometimes just giving preachers Sabbath. I know a couple of organizations I've been a part of. Uh, I was gifted. Uh, my wife and I were gifted a cruise where we could just go away and just have a real Sabbath away before. When you have opportunities like that, you have people that come alongside that say, we want to make sure you're good. We want to make sure that you're healthy. And if there's sin, we want to be able to help walk you through that. We want to help help you figure out what fruit in accordance with repentance looks like. We want to have people alongside to help hold you accountable for that. And then we want to help create a plan for real restoration for you. There are organizations out there. It may not be existent in your denomination. Maybe it is. I hope it is. If it isn't, there's some bigger questions that might need to be asked, too, because they may have something to do with why, how easy it was to fall into this. But ultimately, seeking out genuine help and accountability is necessary. You are not caring for God's flock well if you don't care for your soul well. Mm-hmm. And that's so, so helpful. Um for for uh for those who are watching i love that you said god doesn't seek to cancel you he seeks to care for you mm. and i think that is a, a great way to sum up <laughs> how we should think about god because mm. he's not a he's not a canceler right. um right. and even when you've been deeply wounded by people in the church um the the i i've i've seen this where we've allowed the criticalness of the church usher, the criticalness of the preacher, the criticalness of all of that to make us critical spirits. Mm. So it's like you left the church, but you just, your church has became social media where you could be. Mm. critical. So you're, you're guilty of the same criticalness that damaged you. That's right. But you damage other people because like we said, that healing, if it doesn't come, you repeat it. Right. And so everybody else gets the venom that you are feeling. Mm-hmm. And you're like, well, I don't do church. Mm. If you're damaging in your tone or social media, you're critical. And, and even there's a way to address and be tactful. I always say, how do you, how do you best receive information when yeah. you're wrong? Mm. And you think about that. And most people have a list. Oh, they got to come correct. They got to know me. They got to be people I've given permission to speak mm-hmm. into my life. Mm-hmm. They have this list. And then you look on their social and you're like, man, you're correcting strangers um, with, in a way that you wouldn't receive. That's right. Dish it. Um, That's right. If you can't take it that way, why would you dish it to others? Because you're not really in, you're not looking for transformation for that person. Right. You're just looking to get your perspective out. Mm-hmm. That's right. And so sometimes that criticalness we receive from people in the church, we just take it out and give it to the world. And we use we don't have a pulpit 
we have our fingers and we mm. use Twitter and Instagram mm. or Snapchat to do it. Listen, um, if I could take up an offering for you after that sermon, I would, because look, <laughs> you just preached that thing all the way out. <laughs> so um, do you have any last words, any tools for those who are wrestling with this? And um, how could uh, people get in contact with you on social? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would I would say first, um, what we what we said earlier, I really stand by. I really believe I have in my own in our own budget, our own church budget. I have a line item just for regular therapy, counseling, uh, whatever word you want to use. I, I spend I, I, I value that. I think it's really important to be able to have a safe place where um, and obviously therapy is one thing. And then to be able to have friends and have people that you can be real with. One guy who mentored me said, and I'll never forget it. He said, you need to have people in your life with whom you can share things that could potentially get you fired, but you know that you can have them in your life and they're going to speak truth back to you. You need to know that you get. So basically, in order for you to tell people things that could get you fired and maybe you should step down for you to be able to have friends in your life that love you enough to say, yo, if I'm telling you this is because it's it, because I care about your well-being and I want to see you restored properly. You need to have people like that. Sycophants and yes men or yes women, they will never be for your transformation. And so I would just say be very diligent and be very intentional about having uh, outlets and avenues wherein you can confess real sin uh, and to be able to share real hurt and pain and be humble enough to accept whatever corrective things they want to bring into your life. Uh, That'd be the first thing. And then uh, two, I would say, and this is harder to do, it's easier said than done, but evaluate the structures that are that are in place in whatever church or denominations we find ourselves. If there are not real avenues of accountability, maybe you might be the one to help bring that change about. Maybe you might be the one to say, hey, listen, what does it mean to really see the souls of pastors cared for well? What does it mean? And this isn't just pastor conferences where we can impress each other how well we can preach. <laughs> but honestly, to say like, are there places where pastors and ministry leaders can get together and say, here are some deep issues happening on a heart level for me. And this is where I need encouragement or correction, loving correction. Um, we, we, we need to have some collegial relationships with each other uh, in, in that way. Uh, and so I, I would I would say, yeah, the, the, those are the big things. How to get in, in, in contact with me, I think, uh, on social media. Um, I'm Daryl Ford. If you if you uh, D-A-R-R-Y-L-F-O-R-D on Twitter um, and on Facebook, uh, our church is Icon Community Church. Um, and so the website is that I-K-O-N Community Church dot org. Uh, and you can see, you know, our website. Tell us what we're doing wrong. We'll take it. <laughs> uh, and those I, I think I think those are the big ways to get in contact. Awesome. And I can't leave without saying, um, because what you spoke to is so important. We need other pastors and leaders and men to speak up for the women that are suffering. Amen. Um, Because, you know, you talk about that often because of the deep impact that it had on your mother. And I mean, you didn't share this part, but even you being able, you reached out to one of the women that had been victimized by your dad. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. And standing up for women. Um, I think we need men to do it because I could say I could scream into the top of my lungs. Absolutely. Other men don't check men. Absolutely. And not cover for them and say, okay, that's not right. Because mm-hmm. even we have to take into that 
men have to stand up in that way. That's right. Nothing will ever change. Lisa, so, can, I, can I say something to that real quick? Because I, yeah. I really, that I, you're right. We didn't go into that and we should have. I just want to add this thing specifically for, for men and women, but specifically for men. When we talk about how women exist in church and outside of church, as Christians, we're really, really, really good at talking about things that are abominations to God, right? Pick a couple of sins that we love to harp on, and we'll talk about how those things are abominations. But the scriptures also say that unequal weights and measures are an abomination to God. And there is a very much an unequal weight with which we measure out justice for women, care for women, concern for women. And we need to believe that that is actually a sin. That's actually something that makes God's nostrils flare. He's angered by that. He, he is, his heart is broken by that. And if we keep praying, God, break my heart for what breaks yours, and we're not broken for the disproportionate ways in which women are treated, cared for, or loved, we have to wonder if the truth of the gospel is really in us, and we need to ask God to break us. Amen. I think that's a fantastic way to end. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story. I I think it it is a privilege for for you to allow us to talk about Mm -hmm. it. Um, because it is such sensitive, such a sensitive topic and you've experienced a lot. So just thank you for allowing me to even have this conversation. I greatly appreciate it. And I think it'll be transforming for all those who hear, hear it, meet uh, me and Pastor Four. I think he's going to be there at uh, Greater Piney Grove, August 1st and 2nd mm-hmm. uh, for Courageous Conversations 2019. Don't forget to register. Um, and remember here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it. And this is important because we not only want you to know, we want you to know why, but we also want you to live it. Um, living it is your greatest apologetic, living out the word of God. So see you next time. Have a great one. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.